Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, as we hear of a meeting and a culture which is quite different from ours, uh, we pray that we would understand uh, what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians and we would understand what you are saying to us in this word uh, so that we can live as your people and have gatherings where we can build each other up in faith and hope and love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, it's pretty plain, isn't it, as you listen to the second half of 1 Corinthians, uh, that our gatherings are very different from the gathering Paul describes. I mean, we don't have people pressing to speak in tongues in our service and needing to you know, be told to keep quiet unless there's an interpreter in the building. Uh, we don't have people who call themselves prophets taking it in turns to address us. And we don't usually provide opportunity for public evaluation of what's being said. Tonight might be an exception. And uh, we do have free conversation between women and men. And that's not reckoned as shameful. So we're different. Now, is that a problem? Should our gathering be more like or exactly like the gathering Paul describes? Should we be cultivating tongue speaking? Should we have multiple speakers and a roving mic to facilitate discussion and evaluation of what's been said every Sunday? Should we be praying for prophecy and expect what is actually being said by a prophet to be interrupted by revelation being given to someone else sitting down? Should we not let women speak? After all, Paul calls what he has written the Lord's command. He should recognise that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And we say we're a congregation committed to the authority of God's word, to trusting and obeying all that's written. So are we somehow deficient without making space for tongues and prophecy in every service? Should our gathering be like the one Paul wants, the, wants for the Corinthians, described here in 1 Corinthians 14? And I'm going to say tonight and hopefully persuade you that scripture teaches us to say no and yes to that question. No, there is no need for our gathering to be like the Corinthians in many of the particulars. We're not deficient if we don't have two to three tongue speakers or two to three prophets speaking. So there's a no, but there is a yes, absolutely, in terms of our gathering, firstly, being governed by love in its goal that everything be done for building up and governed by love in its practice so that intelligibility and good order, the servants of the love that builds up, characterise all we do. Oh, yes, in terms, secondly, of the primacy of the authority of the apostolic word, the written word of the Old and New Testament, in ruling all that we do when we meet, and yes, thirdly, in our gathering conforming to and reflecting the reality, the character of our God. As our gatherings directed by the love and truth we know in the gospel of Christ preached and taught by the apostles. 
So let's unpack that no and yes by looking at what Paul is doing in these verses. Now, Paul, as he does in many other places in his letters, is addressing a particular situation in 1 Corinthians 14.26 following. The behaviour of the Corinthians in their gathering, the way they are using or misusing the gifts they've been blessed with. And while it's through addressing their particular situation that God is giving instruction to us all in our differing situations, Paul is not describing a universal form. He's regulating what is there, the expression of the gifts they had, the gifts that seem to have been the ones the Corinthians were focused on, tongues especially, and prophecy. You see, as we know from 1 Corinthians 12, well, from the beginnings of 1 Corinthians actually, the Corinthian Christians knew of and had a variety of gifts. And it would seem that these gifts were being enlisted in a competition for status and prestige amongst the wealthy and powerful in Corinth, a competition that was natural to their culture and was, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, being expressed in many parts of their life, their attitude to the apostles and visiting preachers, their engaging in lawsuits, their attitude to knowledge, to entertaining at the Lord's Supper. Now, in this competition, it appears they particularly favoured tongue-speaking as a mark of being genuinely spiritual, of an elevated spiritual status. You see, their valuing and use of gifts was about them, what it said of them, of their prestige and position. Just as today many can focus on certain gifts, the more spectacular ones, tongues, healings, prophecy, for what it says of them and the experience it gives them, assuring them that they're genuinely spiritual, that uh, they're right about their faith. Now, this self-focused competition was having a destructive effect on the Corinthian church, threatening its unity by leading, as we saw in chapter 12, some to think they didn't belong, others to think that they didn't need their brothers and sisters, and making their gathering a chaotic mess that brought disrepute on the gospel, leading outsiders to say they're crazy. Now, in response, Paul has in chapters 12 to 14, you covered this last week, I'm going to repeat it, in chapters 12 to 14, Paul's continued his campaign that he began back in chapter 2 to change their thinking about what is spiritual. And here he's doing it by focusing on their thinking about and practice of gifts. And right from the start, he's reminded them that the true test of the Spirit's presence is confession of Jesus as Lord. That is, God-given belief in the truth of the gospel the apostles preach. And then he said that the hallmark of the Christian life is actually a great diversity secured by a fundamental unity in the God we serve, that the purpose of the Spirit's giving of gifts is the common good and that the Spirit is sovereign in the distribution of gifts. And then by the body analogy that he's developed in the second half of chapter 12, he's insisted that the Corinthians recognise that all are gifted and all are needed. Before, in chapter 13, dramatically shifting the focus from gifts to love. The most excellent way, the love all believers must practice in all their dealings, no matter what their gifts, 
For without love, Paul has shockingly said, they are nothing, they profit nothing, we are nothing. Now, he's speaking there of the love that endures, remember, because it already beats with the heartbeat of God and so shares already in the life of the age to come. And this is the love that all believers are to pursue as they think about and participate with their gifts in the Christian gathering. Pursue love, Paul commands at the beginning of this chapter. And now he is showing them what a gathering looks like where love is pursued, where love rules. Now, as you heard last week, love insists on intelligibility because it's concerned with the experience of the other, not its own. Love wants the other built up and encouraged and comforted. Love wants the other to be able to participate in thanksgiving and praise to God. Love wants the outsider to be convicted by the truth of God. And love's goals can only be achieved where what is said is understood. That's why prophecy has priority over tongues. It speaks intelligible words that build up comfort and encourage. So love insists on what is said being intelligible, able to be understood because it's in the language of the hearers. Now, at the start of our passage, Paul says the rule of love in the gathering is comprehensive. Love gives the purpose for each and everything done in the congregational gathering. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, everything is to be done for building up. Love says participation in the gathering has to have the good of the other in view in everything we do. Nothing is accepted. Nothing is to be done just because it makes you feel good in doing it or you think you have a right to do it. And the good we are to particularly seek in everything is the building up of our brothers and sisters. Now, again, as you saw last week, building up has been a dominant idea in Chapter 14 to this point. The reason for the preference of prophecy, intelligible words from God over tongues, is that prophecy builds up others. And Paul's already told them in verse 12, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. But this call to build up the church, our brothers and sisters who gather with us, begs two questions. What should we be seeking to build up, to strengthen in each other? And how do we do it? Well, we know what we should be looking to build up in each other. Paul has already told us what has abiding significance in the Christian life. Faith, hope and love, he has said, endure. It is these we are to seek to build up in each other as we build on the foundation of Christ. You see, this is the life, the life of faith, hope and love is the life that endures to eternal life. A life of trusting the Lord Jesus, pressing on to the fulfilment of our hope, rich in the obedience of love. Now, how can we do that as we meet? Build each other up in faith, hope and love. Well, here in the gathering, 
Paul focuses on the role of intelligible words. All the activities listed in verse 26 are word activities. Intelligible words, not inarticulate experiences. Now, why this focus? So let's let's just think about it. How does faith grow? Well, faith grows as we know better the one in whom we have put our faith. You see, that's true of human relationships, isn't it? When I got married to Jane, she made me a promise and I believed it. But as I've gotten to know her better and better, understood the depth of her commitment to her promise, understood better her character and found her always faithful, my faith in her, my trust in her has only grown as I know her better. Faith in our Lord Jesus grows as we know our Lord Jesus better. And that comes from hearing his word, for we know him in his word. We know more of his love, of his authority, of his kindness, of his might in his word. Faith grows as we know Jesus better in his word. How does hope grow? Well, as we know both the promises of God and his faithfulness to his promises. Where do we learn of these? In his word. That's where we hear his promise and that's where we see his faithfulness, for example, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob over the centuries. It's in his word that we see him fulfilling all his promises in the Lord Jesus. It's in his word we hear his promises and then trusting his word we find his faithfulness confirmed in our day-to-day living even as we long for the fulfilment of our hope. To grow in hope, We must have the word of God. How does love grow? Well, remember it says we love because he first loved us. Our commitment to love, especially our commitment to love Jesus' people, grows as we know more and more of Jesus' love for us. Now, how do we grow in knowledge of his love? As the Spirit takes the gospel word, and assures us that Christ has done for us what the gospel proclaims, that he's died for us while we were still rebels against God as the Spirit takes that gospel word and assures us that God's love for us is deep and rich and enduring. And our knowledge of how we're to love others, the character of the love we're to practice, grows as we grow in understanding of God and his will and especially as we grow in understanding of how the Lord Jesus has loved us because that's the standard, the model of the love we're to show for each other. We build each other up in faith, hope and love as we hear in song, in reading, in prayer, in talks, the word of God. You see, experiences can confirm the truth of God's word in our own lives but experiences can never speak to us or others the word of God and we must hear the word. We must have words to build each other up in faith, in hope and love. And that means love does not just insist on intelligibility, it insists, as Paul does here, verse 40, 
on good order and decency so that the contributions of all might be received, heard and engaged with. Again, think of that character of love and you'll see why this is so. Love, as we have heard, doesn't envy, not boastful, not arrogant, is not rude or that could be translated behave disgracefully, is not self-seeking amongst other things. So love doesn't rudely interrupt. Love's not so full of itself that it seeks to dominate the conversation or the meeting. Love isn't self-seeking, so love's concern in the gathering is not the promotion of self through insisting on the right to use its gift. And love isn't jealous. It doesn't resent the participation of others. You see, love is the counter to the disorder that is contrary to God's character. It is the source of the peace amongst us that God, the God of peace, brings. And it's the rule of love that's expressed in Paul's instructions in verses 26 to 36. So in in verses 27 to 28, the need for order is introduced to, or at the most three in each in turn, oh, and the need for intelligibility is made absolute. No matter how exciting or gratifying tongues is for the speaker, without love, they are to keep quiet. They're to forfeit a place of prominence. Love rules the use of tongues. Now, prophecy, as we might expect from the first half of chapter 14, is more highly valued by Paul in the gathering, whereas with tongues it was if anyone speaks in a tongue. In verse 29 we see it is two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something's been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged and the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophet since God is not a God of disorder but of peace. You see, even though prophecy is more highly valued, love still rules its expression. Speakers are to speak in turn, one at a time. No talking over each other. Oh, no one's allowed to dominate. Again, silence is commanded for the first speaker if revelation's given to another. Silence without resentment. And all should submit what they say to evaluation so that the meaning and application can be discerned. No one can be so proud that what they say has to be accepted without reflection, without being subject to the judgment of others. And the goal, verse 31, is the good of others, the good of the listeners, that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. That learning takes place where they can hear and only have to attend to one speaker at a time. And this loving self-control can happen because the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God's not a God of disorder but of peace. So this prophecy is, is not like the experience of Saul who prophesied when overwhelmed by the Spirit and also removed his clothes and uh, lay naked and collapsed all that day and all that night. No, it's not like that, right? Nor is it like the possession with another spirit of the soothsayers and oracles of the pagans, right? The prophets' spirits are subject to the prophets. Christian prophets in Corinth or anywhere 
can't blame God for rude disorder or selfish dominating of the meeting, for God's a God of peace, the God who brings into existence the right relationships with himself and others in which all can flourish. To promote that peace, he in his love gives his prophetic word to build up others for their good. And as you saw last week, it's a sign of his blessing. He wants it heard. Love rules the expression of prophecy. And the love that is not rude, that doesn't behave disgracefully and that isn't self-seeking, that wants decency wants decency and propriety to be maintained in the gathering. It removes stumbling blocks that prevent others from hearing and is not so arrogant that it says to think that all truth resides with it. You see, that's what's at stake in verses 34 to 36. These verses we find hard to hear are also about the rule of love. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church, or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? Now, what is happening in these verses that sound so alien in our culture? Well, Paul is again calling certain people to silence, a qualified silence. Hopefully you noticed as we went through. You see, just as there are circumstances where tongue speakers are to be silent and circumstances where prophets ought to be silent, so there are circumstances where women are to be silent. Now, plainly, this is not an absolute silence. We already know from 1 Corinthians 11 that women can pray and prophesy in the congregation as long as they observe propriety, respect for their husbands and their reputation in the manner in which they do their praying and prophesying, praying and prophesying with the respectable matron's mantle covering their heads. And the call for tongue speakers to be silent doesn't mean that those who have the gift of tongues but no interpreter could not speak at all or forever in a meeting. They were just to be silent in a certain context, in the time set aside for the exercise of their gift. So a call for qualified silence doesn't mean that women can't speak at all in the gathering. They, like prophets and tongue speakers, are to be silent in some circumstance. And it's not an absolute requirement that they can only learn from their husbands. You see, Paul's already said the prophets speak so all may learn. So the women are plainly expected to be learning in the gathering. Verse 35 again is about a particular context of learning. A learning not by listening, but it seems to be by asking. And recognise the context in which Paul frames the instruction. He speaks of women needing to be in submission. Now, as in the rest of Scripture, this call is to be in submission to their own husbands in a context where nearly all adult women were married. And he supports that with a non-specific reference to the law, which is most likely Genesis 1 to 3. That passage Paul has already referenced in discussion of the relationship between husbands and wives in chapter 11. So, in a sense... All of what he's saying there, we've already encountered in chapter 11. And so the context for this instruction is the world of 
man-woman relationships that we encountered in chapter 11, an honour-shame culture where the behaviour of the wife reflects on the husband's honour. Now, noting the context and that this is a call for a qualified silence in some circumstances, what's the situation Paul is addressing with his instruction to the women to be silent? What are the circumstances where women speaking in Corinth would not be compatible with the congregation pursuing love? Well, it seems to arise in the context of the opportunity not to prophesy, for women prophesy, the opportunity to evaluate prophecy, which may have involved questions in discussions. And because of this, some say, like Don Carson, that Paul doesn't want women to participate in the critical evaluation of other people's prophecy, for they might expose some men, some other people's husbands, or even their own, to public shame. Now, others have suggested that the women may have been treating the prophets like pagan oracles to whom people would address personal questions like, should I marry such and such or will I have a child or should I go on a trip or enter into this business venture? The suggestion is that they were shouting out questions to the prophets and so disrupting the meeting, questioning for individual guidance, but actually men did that too. There's probably a more basic sensitivity operating that suggests that women should be silent at this time of evaluation of prophecy and that is a sensitivity to women speaking to other men. Uh, Greg Forbes, an ancient historian, writes, there existed in the Greco-Roman world in our period a strong prejudice against women speaking in public and especially against their speaking to other women's husbands. Such behaviour, he says, was treated as totally inappropriate. And to give you a sense of that prejudice, uh, listen to Plutarch. Uh, uh, right, uh, this is a, he lived 46 AD to around 119 after. This is what he wrote. He, he, he was writing of a woman who accidentally exposed her arm when putting on a cloak. Somebody claimed a lovely arm, but not for the public, said she. And this is Plutarch, not only the arm of the virtuous woman, but her speech as well ought to be not for the public. And she ought to be modest and guarded about saying anything in the hearing of outsiders, since it's an exposure of herself, for in her talk can be seen her feelings, character and disposition. For a woman ought to do her talking, <coughs> whether to her husband or through her husband. And she should not feel aggrieved if, like the flute player, she, whether you feel aggrieved or not, she makes a more impressive sound through a tongue not her own. Now, Rosner lists a few other quotes time that give you a sense of what they were thinking. So there are sensitivities surrounding man-woman relationships in Roman Corinth. You see, in prayer and prophecy, converse is with God. But in critical reflection and questioning, the conversation will be between men and women, between women and other people's husbands. So you see, Paul's instruction really is about the rule of love in the congregation. He is asking the women of the congregation in Corinth, treating them as independent moral agents who are plainly there participating in the gathering, to love others 
by not creating such a scandalous situation that their husbands would be reluctant to let their wives participate because of the public shame it would bring on them, where other sensibilities would be rudely trampled on. Love constrains its freedom to prevent shaming others, constrains its freedom to act with decency. And you will recognise that this is part of a bigger theme that runs through the whole letter. You see, this is the Christ-like love that Paul has called for, the love that constrains its freedom, its rights to seek the good of others in bringing them to hear the gospel, in seeking their salvation. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul had said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul is actually, in a sense, showing the women how they can imitate Christ. It's not, in a sense, that demeaning. It's, it's, the, it's that call to be like Christ. It's this same attitude, the fruit of love, that Paul is calling for here. So, having looked at Paul's instructions, let's come back to the no and the yes. It's clear, isn't it? that Paul is not commanding every congregation here or elsewhere to have tongues or prophecy present in their congregational life. Nor is he suggesting that every Christian meeting should be conducted in the way he outlines here. What's he, what he's doing in the instructions repeated nowhere else in the New Testament is regulating the Corinthian gathering by showing them what it means with the gifts and preoccupations they have to pursue love, to have love rule their gathering. But he is insisting that love should, must regulate the gathering because he is very strong. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognise that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So you hear that? Paul says the test of somebody being spiritual, of having the spirit of God, and the test of somebody being qualified as a prophet, someone who can be trusted to speak intelligible words from God, is recognising that the apostle's word is the Lord's command. You see, just as back at the beginning of this section, chapter 12, Confessing the truth of the apostolic proclamation of Jesus as Lord is the sure sign of the Spirit. So here at the end, the continuing test of your spiritual status is acknowledging that the apostle's word is the word of God, given by God to regulate the life of his people. Paul's clear. And this is not negotiable, not something you can take or leave and still be included in God's church. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored, and Paul means ignored by God. And to get a feel for what that means, listen to Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to you, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. People who set aside the instruction of the apostles, who think their spiritual authority can rival or be substituted for the spiritual authority of the apostles, exercised through their written word, as here in 1 Corinthians, it's a letter, remember. People who think they can rival or substitute their authority for the apostles will be ignored by God. They will hear those chilling words, I never knew you. It matters to conform your life to the apostles' word. And that brings us to our yes. How do we show we have listened to the apostles' words, heard the command of our Lord in Paul's words, have our congregational gathering governed by Jesus through his word? Let me give you four ways. Firstly, by having our meetings governed by love, the love we learn in Christ. And so we have to make edification, building one another up in faith, hope and love, the test of all we do. And so that means what we do must be intelligible in a language people can understand. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't expect to learn the meaning of new words or can't use poetic imagery and metaphors that might take some thinking about to understand because the scriptures are full of words and images that are unfamiliar to us. And it doesn't mean we can't have things like the creed that need to be explained in our services as long as they're in English. But it does mean we will keep the word, the word of God, central to our gathering, present in all we do, in song, in prayer, as well as in preaching. The word of God, not pictures or decorations or dance. The word of God, in our case, in English. And we'll be explaining and teaching what things mean. So we won't be, say, singing songs in other languages with our translation. And yes, it does mean that all of us, and perhaps myself especially, have to be thoughtful uh, to watch our vocabulary and make things as clear as possible. Seeking to build each other up, we will strive for intelligibility. And our meeting will be characterised as it is by order. Now, order might seem so bland, you know, so vanilla, but not having to compete with other voices, not fighting for the microphone, not having unsettling unpredictability, being thoughtful and planned in what we do helps building up in our context. But having said that, we also have to remember that intelligibility and order are the servants of the love that builds up, not ends in themselves. And so we don't want to set such a premium on intelligibility that unless someone can articulate perfectly, they cannot share in Bible reading or prayer. And so, for example, at the church I was at in Sydney last Sunday, uh, they run a group for intellectually disabled people and they had one of the members of that group do the Bible reading on the Sunday. Now, it wasn't perfect, but it was so encouraging. And we don't want to become so concerned with order the people become so tense and anxious about doing something wrong, getting something in the wrong place, you know, that they're so tense they don't want to participate. Or, 
you know, we're so into order that we get troubled about a child running through our services, as happens routinely in the morning, right? Intelligibility in order serves love, and love welcomes. And love also says we're to be concerned to relate appropriately, not shock sensibilities in the way women and men participate, not just in the service, but in our whole gathering. Now, I have to say, I think verses 34 to 36 have less to do with what happens out front, you know, women praying, leading, whatever, than they, it kind of touched on that in 1 Corinthians 11, than they have to do with how we relate to each other generally when we meet. In both contexts, we have to be respectful and acknowledge the relationship between husbands and wives. And we ought to avoid what we would be recognised as inappropriate. So a couple of examples. It would be inappropriate for a bloke to monopolise a conversation with someone else's wife in a private corner of the building, just as it would be inappropriate for a woman to be conducting any conversation with someone else's husband in a private corner of the building. Oh, and it would be inappropriate to run someone's husband or wife down to seek to embarrass them in their presence or in ways or, or not. That would just be inappropriate, wouldn't it? And our society would recognise that as inappropriate. Now, in some contexts where Christians live today, the application of these verses uh, would, would still be very much like it is in Corinth. But we need to be thoughtful, don't we? Thoughtful about acknowledging the differences between men and women. Thoughtful about acknowledging the realities of married relationship. Thoughtful to seek to relate in ways that make people feel comfortable and safe. And not to outrage sensibilities. Uh, let me say, it would outrage sensibilities to make sure women kept quiet. Uh, that would be outrageous, right? And it would. And not to, But also, we oughtn't to think that our pattern is necessarily superior or will naturally be embraced as superior by Christians from other cultures. We have to ask, how does love respect the sensibilities involved in the relating of men and women in a public space? That's what should govern our life together. So... Listening to Paul firstly means our gathering will be ruled by love. And secondly, it means we acknowledge the reality of giftedness. You see, our meeting is different from Corinth. One person preaches and there are good reasons why this form has developed and been practised over the centuries, although there's a lot of other exhortation and encouragement happening in leading and singing and praying. But our meeting despite that, shouldn't give the impression that one person is sufficient or can do it all alone. See, while we might delegate the teaching to one tested and trained and set apart for that purpose in an orderly process, we need and we must welcome the gifts of all in our congregational life. And it's right that our gatherings express that commitment by having many participate with their gifts in the service. Oh, and it's right that we continue to love one another with our gifts as our gathering continues after the service because that's often where the gifts of encouragement and helping really come to the fore. Where we're ruled by the apostolic word, we will acknowledge the reality of giftedness and our need for all the gifts that God has given us in each other and use them in love. And thirdly, 
Where we're ruled by the apostolic word, we will maintain the priority of the apostolic word. Now, Andrew touched on this last week, and we saw in verses 37 to 38 that it's through the teaching of the apostles that the Lord directs and commands his church. The apostles really are, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, first, God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Because their foundation, their teaching is foundational to our individual and corporate following of Jesus. So the apostles really are first. But of course the apostles are no longer amongst us. How do we maintain their foundational place in our common life in every congregation? Well, it's through the reading and teaching of the scriptures, the New Testament that comes from the apostles and the Old Testament, the gospel of our Lord that they preached, fulfills. The apostles themselves, don't they, as you saw last week, make provision for this ongoing ministry of their teaching amongst us through their word, which is the word of Christ. So listen to Paul's instructions. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, teaching. Oh, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Oh, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and teaching. It's not the continuation of prophecy that the apostle makes provision for, but the continuation of teaching. A congregation may or may not have prophets. That's up to God. But we must have the teaching of the scriptures if Christ is to rule us through his word. The word is entrusted to his apostles. It is by that word that faith, hope and love are known and nurtured amongst us. And so it's by that word that we'll actually discover and be encouraged to use rightly all the other gifts. But the provision we must make is to keep that word central to our life. And fourthly, through doing all in love, through maintaining the priority of the apostolic word, and through acknowledging that the Spirit gives many gifts to Christ's people, we express the reality of the God we serve in our meeting. See, think of God. He speaks and he makes his will known clearly by his word. Having his word central says, we serve the speaking God. Oh, he loves richly and deeply and enriches us through the sacrifice of his son. In using our freedom to seek the welfare of others, we are imitating Christ. In having love rule all that we do, we say the God we know and serve is love. And our God is generous beyond compare, giving us in each other all we need to build ourselves up in the faith, in 
at being richly blessed through the gifts of many, we testify to his generosity. And he is the God of peace who has brought us to know peace with himself through the love that gave the Son and to live at peace with each other, the peace that comes from patient, persevering, forbearing and forgiving love that seeks the good of our brothers and sisters in all things. And these things, the love that seeks to ensure that everything in our gathering is done to build up and the truth of the apostles' word of Christ's word as our rule in all things, these things are not negotiable. If we are to be Christ's church, not just for us, but for every gathering, not negotiable. They must always characterise our gathering, any gathering of believers, and then not just the responsibility of one person, like the pastor, but of us all. All of us must serve in love. All of us must acknowledge the apostles' word, the scriptures, as our rule. All of us must welcome and use our gifts in love and truth. Love and truth are not negotiable, but they are so good. <laughs> to live in love and truth, to meet with love and truth, so good. Now, brothers and sisters, you are going to spend the rest of your life in a Christian congregation if you persevere in the faith, as I hope and pray you will. So ask yourself, do you engage in our meeting? not as a user or a consumer, not as someone trying to draw attention to yourself, but as a lover, a lover who seeks to build up Christ's people in all you do when you meet, a lover because you know Christ's love. First question. Secondly, are you passionate that intelligible words from God and above all, the teaching of Christ through his word remain at the core of our meeting. Passionate for that because you know the power and the authority of that word. You know its power to save you and equip you to live for Christ. Are you passionate about the truth of God's word? And do you do everything everything, to ensure in our congregation that others can hear those words, to make sure that, well, that we're a place where all can hear that word clearly, that that word's not marginalised by hours of singing, not confused with background noise, not contradicted by the behaviour of the rest of the meeting, not manipulated, heard clearly. If we are to be Christ's church, ruled by his word, love, everything must be done for building up because that is what love demands. And for that, we must have the word and we have to keep it always central to our gathering. I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy uh, that we would be people who hear your word, that we would be people 
in whom the Spirit moves us to say that what the Apostle writes is the command of the Lord, the Lord who loves us, has given himself for us, who will keep us and raise us up. Help us to love your word and moved by your word to love one another in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.